I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. It's been 200 years since the RHS started offering horticultural training at its very first garden in Chiswick. I'm Dr Suzanne Moss, Head of Education and Learning at the RHS, and I'm excited that today's show will explore the incredible legacy of RHS learning. The satisfaction of just having my hands in the soil just brought me so much joy and I realised that I needed to find a way of getting into horticulture. Horticulture is fantastic. It's an exchange of knowledge, body of skills, and you kind of meet together at a common purpose. The RHS is one of the largest horticultural education programmes in the world, offering learning for everyone from preschool children through beginner gardeners, professional horticulturists and PhD students. I started my own career in horticulture as an RHS student and I am always grateful for the opportunities, for the joy and for the amazing experiences that that course made possible for me. And every year tens of thousands of learners are introduced to horticulture for the first time or they improve their skills and knowledge through our learning programmes. We know this has been especially important for people over the past couple of years as many of us have reconnected with our gardens and realised just how important a connection with nature is. So in this show we're looking back at how our education programmes have pushed boundaries we're catching up with some of our successful alumni and hearing from current students conducting important research today. If you're considering studying with us or you'd love to learn about how the organisation has evolved over time, then this is the show for you. Welcome to this extra special episode of Gardening with the RHS. When John Wedgwood established the Horticultural Society of London in March 1804, it was formed for the improvement of horticulture in all its branches. Then, when the programme was started in 1822, the offer was only for young single men aged 18 to 26. They were employed as labourers, and once they'd worked satisfactorily in all departments in the garden, obeying strict rules governing their conduct, of course, they could be recommended to a position in a country house garden or a nursery. Since then, the offering for RHS education has only increased, and today we provide a huge range of training opportunities, which include short courses for beginner and improver gardeners, work-based learning like apprenticeships and our School of Horticulture Diploma in Horticultural Practice, and we are also an awarding organisation, enabling RHS qualifications to be run in around 80 approved centres across the UK. So these RHS qualifications at levels 1, 2 and 3 are a really thorough and accessible way to train in horticulture and we do recommend them to anyone who's starting out. 
They're really well recognized by employers in the industry, and they're also great for people who garden at home or who volunteer and who are just keen to improve their horticultural knowledge. Around 4,000 people gain an RHS qualification every year. That's a figure that always just blows my mind. And we hope that they all have an amazing time doing it. But if you are someone who is really committed to a career in horticulture and who prefers to learn while doing, and you want to get paid while doing it, our work-based programs like apprenticeships and the diploma program offer an incredible opportunity to train with expert horticulturists in one of our five inspiring gardens around the UK. As part of the diploma program, the students get to dig really deep into a subject they're particularly interested in by writing a dissertation or a research project. Becky Mealy is one of our horticultural advisors based at Wisley, and she spoke to two students who have particularly fascinating research projects on the go. Over to Becky. If you're a rhododendron lover, then keep listening. Hi, this is Becky Meany and I'm here in Battleston Hill in a deepest, darkest woodland path surrounded by aces, camellias. I'm joined here with Joe and Lucy and they are second years, which is the RHS level four with the RHS diploma. So Joe, how did you find the horticultural bug? Well, I think it was already within me from a young age. I remember when I was about four or five, I enjoyed planting the busy lizzies and growing huge sunflowers up the fence in the garden. <laughs> and then I sort of left it for a while and went into music, but I found myself just being drawn to my, my London garden. It was kind of like a sanctuary in the city. And, and Lucy? I think it's always been plants for me. I remember planting broad beans with my grandma. There's some very cute photos uh, when I was probably about four. And I went to study plant science at university, which I really enjoyed, but at the end of it, I realized I needed to be outside all the time. And I kind of hadn't quite realized it was horticulture that I needed to be in, but I spent an evening, I remember planting up some pots. We had just a concrete back garden where I was living and planted up some pots and the satisfaction of just having my hands in the soil just brought me so much joy. And I realized that I needed to find a way of getting into horticulture. So I was fortunate enough to get a place on the historic and botanic garden training program. So I spent a year in Northern Ireland at National Trust Garden, um, Rhode Island Garden, and that was just fantastic. And then I realized that I wanted to work in horticulture and that I needed what well, I felt that I needed to get more kind of practical training and so that I could be more confident in my skills. So it's quite an intense course though, isn't it? Because I, I remember having to write, do you guys still have to do your diary? Well, we get 10 placements, don't we? And we, we kind of rotate around the garden and we have to do, we call it a skills journal now. Okay. Yeah, it's very technical. <laughs> it's really useful for us to take forward as a record of things that we've done here and things that we've learned and also to research the way that other gardens do that as well because being part of the RHS means we can have access to horticulturalists around the world really. When I was a student here my favourite placement was with prop. I Fortunately I was there a couple of times in propagation and that was my favourite department so what was your guys favourite placement so far? For me I really enjoyed woodland. It's a beautiful garden, it's really just relaxing and to be in amongst the trees and the team were really friendly and they also have a wildlife garden at RHS Hilltop. It's been such a big variety. We've spent placement on the garden support services team that do turfing and landscaping, like you say, propagation, um, the edibles team. It's just been an amazing variety to learn in detail about how the very different areas of the garden are run. 
So how many pieces of coursework is there now? Coursework varies quite a bit between the two years and we have kind of lots of smaller pieces in the first year that cover quite a wide range from like garden history, pests and disease, media things for like designing something for the garden magazine and then this year they're kind of bigger projects so we've just coming to the end of our design and build project. Each student designs a garden for a local school or community centre and we have to do everything from the initial client brief and design phase through to budgeting, kind of pretending to organise contractors for how we'd actually complete the project with a budget. And then the dissertation, I think, is probably the next big thing for us to look forward to. Let's start with Joe's dissertation, which is very super cool. I'm going to let you introduce what you're going to be doing. So my dissertation is about the Miyawaki method of afforestation. And so basically, it's a method where you survey the local forest, you choose your native species, then you prepare a small area of land about a tennis court size and then you plant it with loads of these native tree saplings. Because they're planted fairly closely they all compete with each other and grow really quickly and that way you get like a quickly established forest because compared to like conventional forestry methods they plant a tree here and then they move two metres, do another one and they put a plastic guard around it and then over like a five year period they have to spray it with herbicides as well. Whereas Miyawaki is just straight in the ground and it takes care of itself. So actually, I think we probably should spell out yeah. Miyawaki. <laughs> so it's M-I-Y-A-W-A-K-I. Yeah, so it's a method developed by a Japanese botanist, Akira Miyawaki. So I'm comparing Miyawaki to conventional forestry methods and seeing, trying to make a judgement about which one's better. And also I want to try and find out if there's any potential uses within horticulture. Lucy, and your dissertation is? So I'm looking at the value of management plans within historic rhododendron collections. So where we're standing in Baston Hill is ideal to chat about this. We've got an amazing historic collection of rhododendrons here, as do many other gardens throughout the UK. Most of them have come from collections from Victorian and Edwardian times, and many gardens maybe had a really good system of cataloguing and keeping track of rhododendrons to start with, but perhaps over the years, as the plants have grown into big trees and as kind of garden teams have changed, the records aren't always so thorough. Also like the skills and knowledge surrounding looking after rhododendrons has changed or has perhaps decreased in particular as they're not as popular as they were back when there was a big kind of collection craze. And my time at Rowallan Garden in Northern Ireland they have an amazing rhododendron collection there and also working here in the woodlands has inspired me to kind of look at how other gardens are managing their collections, whether kind of plans exist on paper because I know that with the changing of teams and management often kind of ideas get lost or plans aren't continued and perhaps we don't even know how special the plants are that we have in our gardens. So currently at Wisley we have 212 alive rhododendrons on site but there are a thousand a circular a thousand species of rhododendrons in existence and then on top of that there are 20,000 cultivars that have been produced and each year there are several hundred that are registered on top of that so that that 20,000 was from 2001 so yeah we can add maybe another gnaw onto that one you know or something but yeah it's it's a, it's a very diverse genus isn't it 
Why do you love rhododendrons? They're not like a typical, you know, of late. <laughs> because I've had the opportunity to work in some amazing collections and to see what they can become. So at Roalum, there are some very old ones, probably about 100 years old, and they have the most amazing trunk structure. And I guess the history behind them, because they were, many of them have been collected by these famous plant collectors like George Forrest and Frank Kingdom Ward, and just kind of the idea of them growing in the wild in these amazing places and that we can in some way replicate that incredible natural phenomenon. We're standing next to one rhododendron machinoi that I actually really like. It has very narrow leaves and a really thick furry indumentum. So it has this all year round interest really. The new foliage when it comes out later will look really gorgeous and it has a really nice pale pinky white flower as well. Right, so you two are in your second year, so it's drawing to the, the end of time. Should I ask the dreaded question, Joe? what is the plan next? Where, where to after here? I've got an idea to work my way to senior head gardener afterwards, but I'm also open to other opportunities like writing for magazines, planting new wacky forests, anything that comes along really. Yeah. yeah. And Lucy? Yeah, I think I feel the same. I'd like to work in a garden with a, with a rhododendron collection, obviously, but there's also a lot of variety of other plants and tasks that I'd be doing as well. I've learnt so much at Wisley that I'd like to kind of use all the skills, as many of the skills that I can that I've learnt. And um, like Joe says, I think there's just so many different opportunities within horticulture. And, and like you say, you, you just don't know what's going to come up next. You don't know who you're going to meet. Um, Everyone I've met in horticulture has been so friendly and willing or happy to give up their time and to support us as early career horticulturalists. It's just been so fantastic and an amazing industry to get into. Thank you for a lovely morning on Battleston Hill and thank you so much for you know, sharing your um, dissertation topics with us and it's been fantastic. It's just, yeah, it's great. Thanks thank, for the thank opportunity you. and the chat, it's been lovely. Thank you, Becky, and good luck with the dissertations, Lucy and Joe. I mean, I absolutely love hearing from our students. I love hearing them sharing their incredible knowledge and hearing about the amazing experiences they've had studying in our gardens and in their extra experiences. We really have such a diverse pool of students who may be starting their working life with us at age 17 or 18, or they might be career changers who bring a wealth of knowledge and experience in other areas. It really is so exciting to see their relationships grow and the friendships and networks that they make for life. But some of the students that I learned with at Wisley are still my best friends and you really can't underestimate that kind of experience at any point in your life, I don't think. One of my favourite things about my job, it really is watching the presentations that the students give as part of their assessments and I always learn so much from them on the topics that they're passionate about and I know that they learn so much from each other as well. So an amazing experience to be part of. So I thought it would be good for us to chat to someone who spends a lot of time with our students. That is Sheila Das, our garden manager in charge of the School of Horticulture at Wisley. We thought it might be interesting to compare the programmes we run now at the RHS with how they used to be run in the past. So Sheila Das has been running the professional learning programmes at Wisley for over six years and has proudly watched over 200 learners graduate in that time. Hello, Sheila. Hi, Sue. Awesome to have you with us today, Sheila. So we've heard a little bit already today about our diploma programmes. When these first began at Wisley in 1907, they first started at Wisley, 
That was when the main society's main activity moved to Surrey. The garden then took 30 students a year. Uh, students had to be between 16 and 22 years of age and trained practically in the garden. And also alongside that, they had lectures on botany and chemistry and physics. So how does that compare with what students get up to on the diploma programme at Wisley now? Well, essentially, Sue, I think it's it's similar in the sense that students work in the garden, uh, but they also have academic learning alongside that with, with lectures. Uh, some of the content of the lectures, I'm sure, has changed a bit because obviously garden practices have changed over the last couple of hundred years. But our students rotate around all the garden teams in the garden. So during their time with us, they'll spend time with about 10 different teams. And in addition to that, they'll often go out on student trips and visits because there's a lot to be learned from seeing how a wide variety of gardens do things. Uh, get involved with our shows because that's a big part of what we do at the RHS. Some of our students are actually more involved in some of our wildlife gardening activities, which ties into our current uh, investigations into sustainability. I think what is quite different from how it used to be is we, we don't have any height restriction on the intake anymore. So uh, that's quite an interesting <laughs> one to note. Gardeners used to have to be of a certain height. We don't mind anymore. Whichever height, size, shape they come in, they're all glorious. Um, how tall did they need to be? I can't remember. I think it was over low five foot something. They had to wow. be over that. And I'm not did sure. Did we have the one of those was. bars like they Probably. have on a roller coaster? Yeah, I think, Amazing. I think so. <laughs> Good grief. Um, so you said about um, how the content of the programmes has changed a bit and how that's come with more focus on sustainability in horticulture. So could you say a bit more about, about that, that content and how the sustainability is really at the fore now of our programmes? Yeah, so obviously we've changed the syllabus along with the change in horticultural practices across the industry. We're all now realising as gardeners that we need to work with our environment rather than against it or in battle with it. And sometimes gardening in the past has been much more about control over the natural environment than actually being harmonious. So now with developments in science, technology, changes in growing techniques, we're all understanding a bit more how we can have less impact on the environment and even contribute positively. And that's certainly the aim that we're focusing on now at the RHS and, and, and sharing that ethos with our students. The learning is, is sort of much more accessible now. It's available at all of our RHS gardens. And you can also learn RHS qualifications around the country via many of our centres. And all of those will have in common that develop constant development and evolution in the delivery of the programme to reflect changes in horticultural practice. Yeah, I mean, that sustainability for the planet is something that I think has really come to the fore over recent years, hasn't it, in horticulture, but also how important horticulture is for people and well-being. So we want to include as many people as possible in the horticultural industry and get more people to grow. How have our courses and training programmes become more inclusive over time? Obviously, um, we now take people over five foot four. <laughs> how, how else? Yes, yeah, so obviously it doesn't matter how tall you are, but it also doesn't matter, well, it doesn't really matter how you are in general. So unbelievably, the uh, School of Horticulture didn't actually admit women until 1976, although women were drafted in to work in the gardens during both world wars. So there were women working in the gardens, somehow not deemed fit for the lofty study of the diploma programmes and things that we were offering. So that's obviously a big change. And actually, we're extremely diverse in terms of gender across, across the whole industry now. We we also support a wide range of learning needs. So um, understanding how people like to learn is really important to the way that we deliver our programmes. 
and, uh, and making sure that we're as accessible as we possibly can be, but also addressing different levels that people want to learn at. So people who want to leisure learn, uh, but also people who want to learn professionally, which is obviously what we focus in on the practical training in the gardens. We are always wanting to improve further. I'm really excited that we've got a new scheme about to launch, which is called the New Shoots Programme. We're going to be investing 1.3 million over the next three years into this new initiative, which is going to hopefully help us to further improve diversity within RHS training programmes, but also within the horticultural industry. And we're really excited about that. So watch this space. Can you tell us a bit about where our learners have gone previously and what jobs they have now? Yes, well, a number of people do go into practical gardening jobs, but at a variety of levels. So often depending on whether they want to take on a supervisory role or whether they want to become more sort of technically adept with a particular plant group. Uh, so we have a number who are head gardeners. We have an ex-student who's working in a therapeutic gardening environment, at a hospital garden. One of our students actually was doing some work for DEFRA, assessing the health of potatoes and doing that across the country. So that gone into a quite sort nice. of sciencey and technical production side of things. Uh, equally, some go into education and uh, others can look at journalism or into retail even and garden design. Some go into arboriculture more specifically, get into that. And quite a number do actually develop quite an, an artistic and vibrant floristry habit, even if it's alongside their daytime gardening job. So we've actually got a few students who stayed on uh, to work in our garden here at Wisley who are also incredibly creative and do some wonderful displays in the garden. It's very broad. Just to check, a floristry habit is legal, isn't it? Yes, I believe so, okay. yes, and to be encouraged. <laughs> I, one of my favourite stories is of one of our most famous alumni, Joseph Paxton, who, ironically, one of our the first students to take part in RHS training in the early 1800s. And he's probably, I think, our most famous. He was a student at the garden at Chiswick when he was 20, and already quite an impressive young man by then. And he met the Duke of Devonshire, who was walking around the garden. And the Duke was so impressed by having, just having a chat with Paxton that he immediately offered him the position of head gardener at Chatsworth. And famously, <laughs> Joseph Paxton said that he traveled straight up to Chatsworth. He explored the gardens after scaling the kitchen garden wall at 4 a.m. in the morning, set the staff to work, which I'm sure they appreciated on his first day. He ate breakfast with the housekeeper, met his future wife, who was the housekeeper's niece, and completed his first morning's work before nine o'clock, which is quite impressive, isn't it? Absolutely. He then married, he married Sarah Brown, actually, in 1827. And with her support, he really went on, I mean, the, he transformed the gardens at Chatsworth. He built the glass house there, which then became the model for uh, the Crystal Palace, which he designed as well. So, I mean, an incredible and illustrious career. And we have had a variety of illustrious and alumni since. Anyone in particular you'd like to highlight, Sheila? Well, interestingly, actually, Sue, as you mentioned Chatsworth, so I think what's always been really profound for me as a gardener is the fact that gardening, I always tout gardening as being the only true profession that you can do where you can travel through time, literally. You can interact with living things that were alive well before you were, um, that were gardened by other gardeners. And actually that conversation is really happening at Chatsworth now. Chatsworth is a great example. So as you mentioned, Sir Joseph Paxton was there and, and did a notable contribution in that garden alongside other people. Uh, but more recently, Dan Pearson, who's 
who's one of our uh, sort of most well-known garden designers, who is also a graduate from the RHS, has been doing some work with Chatsworth too. So Chatsworth is an exciting garden. It's a historic landscape, but it's constantly evolving as it would have done uh, throughout the tradition of its history. Uh, so Dan's been contributing there and, put, and sort of helping to paint that picture and, and bring that garden into modern times. Excitingly as well, here at Wisley, we did a huge project last year and engaged the services of a company called Landform, who's run by Mark Gregory, who's built hundreds and hundreds of Chelsea show gardens. Mark always remembers fondly his time here as a student at Wisley. He spent a year here some, some time ago and has gone on to do truly amazing things. And interestingly enough, I am off today to uh, take our students to a beautiful garden in Sussex called uh, Gravetie, where Tom Coward is the head gardener, and Tom also spent some time here at Wisley. So really... The opportunities are wide and diverse, but also very profound that people can go on and then make an impact in landscapes and environments that literally transcend time and last for a long period and speak to future generations as well as responding to things that have happened in the past. So it's immensely exciting. It is exciting. And I think, you know, the horticultural industry is bigger than anyone ever thinks it is. It actually provides up to 1.6% of all UK jobs, which I think is just an incredible statistic. So... Now we've heard about all the amazing opportunities and the things that people have gone on to do. Sheila, is there any advice you would give to anyone hoping to embark on any of our professional training programmes at the RHS? Uh, yes, Sue. Actually, my first piece of advice would be to just talk to us, get in touch with us at the School of Horticulture at the RHS, and we will gladly have a chat with you about what options are available to you. It's certainly not a case that people should ever feel afraid that they don't know enough already or they haven't got enough experience already. There's always a pathway to pursue. Thanks so much, Sheila. Thanks for your time today. It's been great to hear that. Thanks for the advice. Um, and I really hope we see some listeners in our application pool next year. Thanks, Sue. Now, from the very first lectures at the RHS to our most advanced qualification, the Master of Horticulture, or MHort, as we like to call it for short. This is the RHS's most prestigious award, which originated as the National Diploma in Horticulture as early as 1911. The National Diploma was replaced by the title Master of Horticulture in 1985, and in 1988, the RHS became one of only a handful of non-university organisations in the UK, which is allowed to confer a degree-level award. The MHort is now studied by about 100 candidates at any one time, making it one of the largest horticultural degree programmes in the UK. And I know a man who is particularly keen for you to sign up. I mean, I absolutely love horticulture. I eat, sleep, breathe, drink horticulture. I love it. <laughs> My name is Roy Godwin and I'm assistant head gardener at Sculpture by the Lakes. So my earliest memory of gardening and, and horticulture was my father. He was my inspiration, God bless him. He was a dairyman by trade, but he was a very enthusiastic gardener. He was mostly into like, fruit and veg gardening. And as a very young lad, I remember sort of being allowed a small patch in the garden to sort of grow the carrots and the onions. And that was kind of my responsibility as a very small boy. You know, I'm providing the food for the family and putting the food on the table and that was my earliest memory which I took on from my father and it developed as I got older and my mum was really into bedding plants and things like that so from then on that was the seed that was planted very early on in my, in my life. The start of my horticulture career was at Kingsmore College and I did my RHS level two and three and I, I need to stress that 
it's important. These RHS level two and three qualifications are very important because they lay such a wonderful foundation for the future. I mean, RHS is not just fantastic at Master of Horticulture level, it's throughout the entire pathway from level one all the way through to what is level six when you've achieved your MHort award. The Master of Horticulture award is the degree choice for me because it offers so much. I still keep in contact with a lot of my colleagues from MHort who are also doing very, very well. So it's opened up a magnificent network in the industry. So you get the academic sort of relevance and value, but also you get a lifelong community that you're a part of. It provides so much opportunity for further research. So, you know, to those people who are in horticulture who, like me, thought, I really would love to go and visit this country, I'd love to see this opportunity, I'd love to visit this famous garden, but I can't, I'm nervous about doing it, I don't know how to do it, what channels in which I can do it. Contact the RHS, there's RHS bursaries that help support students to pursue their studies, get you to different places in the world and see them firsthand. I mean, for me, it was Costa Rica and it was a wonderful experience to which I'm incredibly grateful to the RHS for. An opportunity came up in 2019 to go to Costa Rica and research for two weeks the effect of climate change on orchids and bromeliads, and that was fantastic. We all enjoy going to you know, supermarkets and buying Phalaenopsis orchid and exotic plants, bromeliads, houseplants, and they're stunning plants, but there is no substitute for going and seeing them in real life. So actually seeing, you know, essentially epiphytes and, and orchids and bromeliads hanging in the moss of other trees throughout primary, secondary cloud rainforests, you know, and seeing them in their natural habitat and all the wildlife that have these interrelationships with the plants around them, it was fantastic. It opened up a whole new world. The M Hort Master Horticulture Award professionally has opened up a lot of doors as well. Now I'm assistant head gardener at Sculpture by the Lakes. This is at Paddington Lakes uh, near Dorchester and Dorset, a fantastic botanical garden and sculpture park an opportunity which was presented to me because I've done the M Hall. You know, as a visitor attraction, it brings so many thousands of people from all over the UK and different parts of the world because it's art seen from different angles. So it's art in the form of sculpture and gallery and it's art in the form of just complete pure nature. And the two just disconnect perfectly. Anyone who wants to get into horticulture, do it because there is a worry when choosing a career, it's gonna be really hard work, it's not gonna pay very well, and there are these stigmas that follow suit with the horticultural career and the industry, and it's not true. Horticulture is fantastic, it pays as much as any other job, but it's far more rewarding, in my opinion, than most jobs out there. It's an exchange of knowledge, body of skills, and you kind of meet together at a common purpose, so you're never alone. It's always so inspiring to hear from our candidates and to hear about their research. The MHort is a blended learning program studied mostly online, and so it can be studied from all around the world. One of the most amazing things about it is that we have candidates from places like Hong Kong, Malaysia, the US, the Cayman Islands, Africa, and so many more places, meaning that the cohorts together learn so much from one another, and they can also tailor the program to their own specific work situation, which makes it as relevant as possible to people who we know have really busy professional lives. It really is a unique qualification, which we are incredibly proud to be able to offer. So that's all we have time for today on the RHS podcast. 
If you've been inspired by anything you've heard today, whether you're a beginner gardener, thinking about changing careers into horticulture, or a professional looking to grow your skills, visit rhs.org.uk forward slash learning for more information. For more on anything we've discussed here today as well, just visit rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. I'm Dr. Suzanne Moss, and I hope you're feeling inspired to get out there and to continue learning. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.